during my PhD fieldwork, I worked in a site that had a very large population of leeches. In fact, we used to have competitions to see who could have the most leeches at the end of the day. The total winner was 47. And I had the wonderful experience of having a leech drinking blood from an eyeball. Now, there's not a lot you can do about that. You just have to wait for it to finish drinking so you can pop it back in the wild. It doesn't do a lot of damage, thankfully, but your eye bleeds for about 15 minutes. And so you continue on with your field work with a bit of a red filter over life. Ooh. Dr Marissa Parrott from Zoo Victoria with leachy eyeballs and, well, sounds like leachy everything, really. Off Track is back with another incident report direct from the field where things have gone wrong, subtly or epically, and we feel it's a must to deliver the results of these adventures for your listening pleasure. Dr Ann Jones here with you, no stranger to failing at every turn, such as the first year I was in this job with Off Track and I fell into Sydney Harbour completely clothed with several thousand dollars worth of equipment attached to me, and I'm not really a very strong swimmer either. But sometimes the fieldwork fails are less whoopsies and more appointments with Professor G. Reaper, the chair of the Unified Council for Early Deaths and Close Calls. Walter Basilik is 78 years old and he decided that he'd do a little bit of fishing off the rocks near Albany and WA while he was on holiday. He asked a couple of the locals where it was looking good and he decided he'd have a go the next day. And the the following day... I got back to the rock and I'm uh, uh, fishing there for about five, ten minutes. And uh, not not a wave did not come over the rock there, but on the side, the water just ran there. And it just went over the rock behind me. And I said, no, I don't like this because uh, uh, that doesn't look too safe. So I put my fishing rod down, looked at it and where else I can go out. And I saw this place, so I walked and went out and I said, oh yeah, there's no problem, I can get the, uh, back out this way again. And the next thing I know is, before I realised what is happening, I was jammed in this crevice. Yes, there were boulders everywhere, things there, and uh, behind me there were two rocks on either side of me. And yeah, my left side was dangling down free. There was nothing there. There was something like an 18 to 20 inch gap there, and I was stuck in that. Virtually my entire weight was wedged on my right leg, right angles, you know, down and back out. And I was able to lift up my right hand and there was also a bit of a ledge there, and I can support myself with it. That's where I was the best part of a year, four to four and a half hours. I had to put it, I was saying goodbye to everybody there because I really did not know how long I can help myself there. My body was shivering uncontrollably. On the beginning, I was screaming as loud as I could and, you know, continuously, yeah. Later on, what happened there, every few minutes, I used to yell out, help, somebody help. And believe it or not, I yelled, help, yeah. And somebody says, I'm here, mate. Yeah, so I was 
standing well, at the car park kind of thing, looking at the false island of Mutton Bird. You can see the waves were pretty rough crashing over, so I was like, oh, I won't go, but decided to go for a four-wheel drive anyway, and just happened to come across them, yeah, and they'd said no one else had been only for the day, which I'm not surprised, the swell was pretty decent, so. I'm here, mate. I'm, here, mate. I'm hearing things, you know? But then again, he said, the, uh, where are you? So with my left hand, uh, I could move my left hand, no problem. My fishing rod was lying there, so I picked it up and lifted it as far as I could and waved. The young fellas came there and he says, I can see you in the act. I came down from right down here, kind of slid down because it was a little bit wet and like wedged myself in on the rocks there and freaking out a little bit at the time, but eventually kind of instincts take over and you just go, right. He pulled up and I was, you know, hanging on and tried to pull him down. Yeah, he could not budge me. Like, like trying to slide around, and get different ankles. I ended up like ripping his shirt and stuff, just trying to get him out. So, why don't you grab, you know, the back of my shirt there, see if you can sort of lift me out that way? I did under his arms and really lift him, and yeah, but I eventually did get him out. So he lost all feeling in his legs, and I think one of his arm, oh, his left arm, I don't think was working very well, and his right one was the only thing he was holding up himself. So, you got no idea how relieved I was when I was panting there and I just keep saying thank you, thank you, thank you, you know? If I was in this, been there for four and a half hours, like, I would have been freaking out too, so. I was a sigh of relief at first to get him out and get him up, but then I was more worried about because of his age, and, like, he said he didn't have any feeling in his legs and stuff, I was worried he might have been, I don't know, stroke or heart, something like that, being there for so long, so. Like, it's credit to his um, his wife for pulling the EPIRB and remembering that it was there, because in that situation, she, I probably would have forgotten I even had it, to be honest, so. Wife is here not well. She's got Parkinson's, she had, had two strokes, she's got heart problems and she shuffles when she walks, right? But I was stuck in there. I was hoping she does not come try to rescue me because she would have never made it even to, to go as far as where I am. But what my clever wife did, she went and activated the EPIRB about half past 12. So when young Jeff Fitzpatrick got me out and everything, and then we look up the rocks there, and there are two policemen walking towards us. Honestly, like, I went home and told my mum, and the next day she was like, you need to go get an EPIRB, like, you need to do the exact same things, like, I don't want that being you one day, so... Yeah, anyone out there get an EPIRB, it's honestly, it could save your life one day. Walter Bazalik and Jeff Fitzpatrick spoke with Tyne Logan from ABC Great Southern in WA. And Jeff's mum has some strong advice there. Get an emergency beacon, everyone. Of course, not all stories involve a brush quite so close with death. And I'm going to tell you about the time a marble dew bit my finger. <laughs> Cameron Amos. It was... It was a beautiful day, actually. It was a spring day, and we'd head down to East Gippsland in the Tarrago River to sample fish. And it was me and a work colleague, and we headed down. Got to our first site, and it was a deep, slow-moving part of the river. And I was, like, looking at it and thinking, there's no way we're going to be able to sample anything. We only had a backpack electrofisher. These things, you, you put them on your back, and you wade through the water. They use electrical current to stun the fish. We glanced down the water and it was a clear, but it was deep. It was two metres deep, which is impossible for a backpack electrofisher. Right there, about 
disappointing centimeters from the surface was a big marbled eel. This was huge. As we looked down into this water, it serenely swam past us like it there was no trouble in the world and moved past us and we looked at it and we were like, wow, that is a big fish. I wish we could catch that in our surveys further upstream. So we jumped back in the car and got to our next site and we did our survey there and no no sign of any marbled eel and hopped back in the car and we talked about maybe the next site and hopped out and raced to the river and, and no, no marbled eel and the further upstream we got the habitat changed and became more rocky and, and fast flowing and less sort of eel-like and we were just sampling up to sort of a riffly part, a sort of shallow cascading area and I started doing the electrofishing which is waders, backpack electrofishers, quite heavy with this pole that sort of hits the water and gives a electrical current which stuns fish in front of it and as we did this there was a marbled eel that moved and swam fast away from us and in my excitement I chased after this massive large marbled eel and I ran over algal covered rocks scrambling fast as I could to try and capture it because as anyone who goes fishing the bigger the fish the better and as I came across it closer and closer and finally the electrofishing survey tool was able to, to knock it out and I there I had it it was knocked out stunned in the water I picked it up and it was big it was, it was more than a meter and it's the the diameter of it or the girth was the most impressive thing it was a big eel and I was very impressed that I'd caught it after the whooping and hollering and yahooing <laughs> as we did we put it down on the in the cobble and in the stream and walked away leaving it to recover but the further away I got it didn't seem to move and I got a bit concerned these, these are old fish and they're relatively rare so I was a bit worried so I walked back to it and hoped it would start moving and no even the splash of my feet no movement so I did what all people do when they growing up watching Rex hunt is try and get some flow through its mouth and so I put my finger in its mouth and tried to get the flow getting through to its gills and as soon as I did that it clamped shut on my finger and it was holding on tight so tight I couldn't actually get my finger out I could have easily just walked off and have the eel being dragged behind me I tugged and pulled, I used my other hand to try and release the pressure and then I was like, I'm going to have to kill this thing. I'm going to have to put a rock on its head for it to let go. It was only two minutes in to the hold, I was starting to worry because this was one 
fixed finger into one tight mouth. Eventually, I don't know why, maybe it didn't taste too good, it released me. And I gasped in relief and in the pain that it was causing. I had a look at my finger and it was covered in these tiny little dots of blood. Pinpricks, hundreds of them. And it just made me realise that they're, they've got a pad of sharp hypodermic teeth that I shouldn't have stuck my finger in if I'd known that that was the case. A couple of weeks later, I caught up with a mate and a fellow fish ecologist and he was telling me that they actually feed a lot on carrion or decomposing animals and I was extremely lucky that it didn't get infected and I always think about that time putting my finger inside a giant marbled eel. Thank you. Thank you to the eel or to us? Either way, eels and their needle teeth, eh? Who knew? And while we're on the topic of bites, here's Shoshana Rapley, a bird nerd and PhD student from ANU. I spend a lot of my time volunteering on various conservation projects and I cannot wait to be out there again. But looking back on some of my favourite places I've been, a standout has to be Cabbage Tree Island. Cabbage Tree is off Port Stephens, off the New South Wales coast, and it's home to a nesting colony of Gould's petrels, a threatened seabird, and they've been monitored there for the last couple of decades. One side of the island is sheer tussocky vegetation, the other side has two gullies, at the bottom of which is a big boulder pile, and that's what the Goulds nest in. What we try to do is find the chicks and put bird bands on them, which are metal rings so we can identify them later and keep tabs on the population. The first step is to actually get to the nests, which is a mean feat in itself. Because the petrels nest in pretty much anything, whether that's a pile of rocks or a pile of fronds or a decaying tree trunk, you can only stand on things that you're absolutely certain are solid or you might accidentally stand through onto a nest. So you're basically rock hopping between large boulders and patches of dirt trying to not topple down and fall down the ravine. And while you're doing this, you can't grab on any of the vegetation for support because it's all really spiky cabbage palms, so that's no good either. Once you get to the nests, then the real fun begins. To get the petrol out of the nest, you stick your arm right down to the bottom, and sometimes that means getting your entire arm, your shoulder, your chest, and half your head down into a rock pile. And then you let the baby bird bite you on the finger. Once it's bitten you, you put your thumb on top of the beak, and your middle finger on the bottom, so it's bitten you on the index, and then you walk the chick out of the burrow. And the chicks are outrageously cute. It's like if you took a bunch of grey lint out of your washing dryer, and then you just stuck a little white face, a beak, and a tail on. They are adorable. And the bites don't really hurt at all. It's more a problem of getting vomited on by them. Because they're fed a diet of shrimp, it's this absolutely fluorescent red goo, the smell and colour of which will never come out of your clothes, I can guarantee you that. The real danger is if you accidentally put your hands down a sheer water burrow instead. And you can tell when anyone's done that because you hear an ouch from the other side of the island and someone quickly pulling their hand back out of the burrow. It's all worth it though. The island is spectacular and the conservation project is really reaping benefits. So yeah, getting bitten for science isn't all bad. Unless you're Melissa Christina Marquez, a scientist who is very into sharks. 
We were looking for uh, the great hammerhead known as the Queen. She's involved with the Finns United Initiative, and she grew up in Puerto Rico and Mexico, and this particular story takes place in the waters just off Cuba. It's a legend around there that there's this really, really massive hammerhead shark that kind of patrols the area. What was she doing in Cuba? Well, Melissa presented a TED Talk on sharks, and that caught the eye of the Discovery Channel, and they invited her to take part in filming, which led her to Cuba. Melissa spoke to Off-Track producer Joe Kahn about her experience and what went wrong. So we were actually not too far off of our home base. Uh, we had like a floating boat hotel. And while we were diving in the mangroves looking for the Great Hammerhead, uh, just because one of its favourite foods, stingrays, uh, happened to be in the mangroves, we decided, OK, let's try it at night and see if maybe the hammerhead's hunting at night. We dove under um, and almost immediately we got to see a three metre or a ten foot American crocodile. I'm used to seeing big gators, but I didn't know that there was crocodiles as well in the Americas and there's actually quite a lot of them there in Cuba. And so we were there diving at night, came across this big animal um, and the plan then kind of changed to, all right, let's see if we can film this big predator as well. At night, can't really see anything outside of your torch so we had quite a few big lights underneath there to kind of help us see what was around us and we all had our own torches as well. It went from being quite a commotion of a lot of people you know trying to direct us where to go where to be um, us you know trying to make sure that we gave the crocodile enough space um, while still kind of getting the quote-unquote shot and you know there was other times where all of us kind of just sat in silence and watched this animal kind of just float about and look at us. It's almost like looking a dinosaur in the face. So it was absolutely amazing. And I think I got kind of sick and tired of this and eventually it went away. And that kind of set up the stage for the rest of what happened. During that dive towards the back half of it, the microphone in my mask actually started acting up. So I couldn't hear what anyone was saying. And then it later turns out that they couldn't hear me either. While it wasn't ideal that I didn't have communication with my colleagues, the good thing about scuba diving is that normally you don't have a microphone attached to your face, so there's actually quite a lot of hand signals that we do underwater. I did the hand signal of like, you know, this isn't working, or at least the hand signal that I thought was well enough of, no, this isn't working. They realized it and we started doing hand signals and whatnot, and it was towards the end of the dive when the crocodile had already left and they started pulling the lights out from the water and whatnot that my diver and I uh, gave each other the okay sign and he pointed up, which is basically saying, all right, the dive's over, we're, we're heading up. And I was like, oh, okay. But I waited a few extra seconds for him to go up because if I went up at the same exact time that he was going up, his fins actually would have hit me in the face. So I was like, I'll just wait a few extra seconds and then I'll go up right after him. And it was in those few seconds that I kind of felt this really hard pressure on my left calf. And that's when I started feeling myself getting dragged backwards away from the light. And for those who don't know with scuba diving, you have quite a lot of stuff on your back on a scuba diving vest, essentially. And it's kind of hard to twist around to look behind you, but also the angle that the croc had me at, I just, I, I couldn't look back to see that it was a crocodile. But very quickly, just because of how it had me in its mouth, I realized, right, that's not how a shark bites. It's very much a crocodile. What I ended up kind of doing was thinking about it really rationally. Time really slowed down for me and I was like, right, 
okay, so don't move your leg because it's either going to bite harder and then it's really going to hurt and you're not going to be able to think or it's going to do the infamous death roll, which a lot of crocodiles and a way to incapacitate their prey is when they bite them and then they just roll their whole entire body. It basically kills the animal quite quickly depending on where the animal is being gripped at or it breaks some bone which further incapacitates the animal as well. So it makes it easier for the croc or the alligator to eat this animal. And that's not what I wanted because if it did the death roll either from my knee down or my leg down was going to possibly pop off and I would bleed out before anyone would be able to get to me. So number one priority was kind of keeping my leg straight, not moving it whatsoever. And the next priority was seeing if I could like hold on to a rock or one of the mangrove roots to keep it from pulling me uh, too far away. Unfortunately, in the mangrove area where we were, we were in the middle of the channel, so I wasn't anywhere near the roots to kind of hold on to anything. There's not really any big rocks as well there, and there was no sticks for me to either like whap it on the head or pry my leg out either. So when that wasn't working, I started hitting my microphone button because that's when I thought, okay, maybe they can't hear, or I can't hear them, but they can hear me. So I started telling them I've got bit, I'm being bit, I'm being dragged. Didn't hear anything, didn't know if they had heard me. So the next thing that I thought of was, right, I'm a pretty slow breather anyways uh, when it comes to scuba diving. So I, I was pretty confident that I had a pretty full tank on my back. So I was like, okay, I'll let it drag me wherever it needs to drag me. And then I still have oxygen. I'm, I, like, that's not a fear. And as soon as it kind of lets me go, I'll shoot up to the surface, take the mask off and start screaming. But while I was thinking that, it just let me go. And I think the reason why I did that was um, twofold. One, I kept my leg as still as I could. But also, I was in a scuba suit, which is made out of neoprene. It's a very weird texture, but it doesn't feel like meat. And so I think once it kind of had me in its mouth, which is very highly receptive and has like receptive sensors, it kind of realized, oh, no, wait, this isn't what I normally eat. And it just spat me out. And I didn't wait to figure out if it was going to do something else because I said, screw the safety stop, which is what you're usually supposed to do um, when scuba diving uh, to get the nitrogen out of your body. I was like, nah, screw it. And I went straight up in the air. At that point, I didn't even know if I had a leg left. There was quite a lot of adrenaline in me and that whole area kind of hurt. So I was like, oh, do I even have a leg? So um, I tried not to move it just so no more blood would kind of like rush to that area. And to be honest, I, I think I was in such a state of shock. Like I remember shaking and trying to get the mask off of my face. And I guess they saw the fear on my face and they're like, right, we, we need to take her out of the water right now. What was it like being treated and recovering from that while you were in that remote location? Oh, it hurt so bad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, they took me out of the wetsuit and whatnot and they sat me down. The medical uh, head, he ended up doing um, a Dakin solution to clean out my wounds, uh, which is a bleach and water kind of uh, mixture. And then they put a pressure hose into the wounds to get out as much debris as possible. Uh, just because the crocodile mounts, I mean, they don't brush their teeth, so it, it's got a host of bacteria there. And that was the big thing was, all right, if I'm not going to bleed out, which from those uh, bite marks I wasn't going to, the next big thing was going to be infection. Did you find the queen, the hammerhead? We did. Yeah, we did get to see her, um, which was really great because I was like, right, I'm not leaving Cuba until I see the queen. I deserve it now. Uh, and sure enough, we did get to see her, which um, she was absolutely beautiful. And yeah, just 
a testament to Cuba and the people who live there and take care of this oasis because hands down, it's the best diving I've ever done. It's the healthiest coral reef I've ever seen. It, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So she's picked a good home. Melissa Christina Marquez is now writing a PhD at Curtin University and hopefully staying away from Australian salties. Still to come in this series of OHS incident reports on Off Track. This is actually a pretty common issue that has plagued me and many other researchers over the years. You know, I was just feeling pretty victorious to have gotten this bird off the runway. And it's just chewing on him. Nang, nang, nang. In an impressive feat of parkour, he launched himself directly at me and springboarded off my face and onto the next tray. Leaving us with no toilet paper and excreting fish out both ends. And remember to meet me and the gang here at the same time next time. And remember your signed permission slips, because that's when I'll take you somewhere else.